Welcome to HP Lovecast Presents Fragments, our new podcast posting on the third Sunday of each month. In each episode, we will present a discussion of a story as an addendum to our HP Lovecast or an independent discussion of a selected story. We may also interview creators such as writers and artists in the horror and or horror fantasy genres. I am Michelle Brittany, editor of the Bram Stoker-nominated Horror in Space and the book review editor at the Journal of Graphic Novels and Comics. I write on all things pop culture, with special emphasis on horror and spy genres. And I'm Nicholas Dyack, a pop culture scholar of Peplum Films, industrial music, horror studies, and I'm the editor of the new Peplum from McFarland. Michelle and I also co-edited Horror Literature from Gothic to Postmodern, also from McFarland. This episode's musical intro and outro is from Asaguare and is an excerpt from the song Ulian Piobari. <laughs> Please check our show notes for a link for the complete song at archive.org. In today's episode, our special guest is Kathleen Kaufman, a Los Angeles-based author of fiction, literary horror, and modernized folklore. Last year, we interviewed Kathleen on the Scholars from the Edge of Time podcast just prior to the release of her book, Diable, the first novel in a series in which she shared her writing journey with us as well as talked about her other novels. We'll include a link to that podcast in the show notes. Kathleen's follow-up novel, Cinder, is set to release on Tuesday, October 27th. We caught up with her to discuss this book in depth as well as her upcoming projects and events. So Kathleen... Uh, kind of give us a caught up on the events in uh, your first book, Devil, and what's going on in Cinder. Uh, short and sweet, tell us what, what's going on. What's this new book about? All right. So at the end of Davla, we had Kate returning back to Cinder Avenue and back to basically home, back to the cult. But she was definitely implied at the end of Davla that she was returning back to lead them. And she was not returning back to be a child, even though she was very much a child. She was 13 when she comes back. But Cinder picks up as she has turned 21 and has been, in effect, leader of Cinder Avenue for quite some time, basically since she was 13, but 18 in legal terms. She holds all the deeds to the houses. She basically controls all the money. She does everything that... uh, her great her great grandmother Moransley did in her life right and it's her responsibility and she's not a normal girl so this doesn't really bother her too much right she's not normal uh and we know that from book one right (laughs) she might have she might there might be blood running through her veins but there's also you know she's got a little devil in her too there so she's doing but she's having to manage this and basically in cinder she's having to deal with the realization that she doesn't want this to continue she doesn't want this cult to perpetuate and that she wants it to end and she wants it to end before alan her brother who has just turned 18 and just graduated from high school and is now an adult gets roped and into it, gets sucked into it and feels like he cannot get out. So from from Kate's story, it is her management of Cinder Avenue, her plans to basically destroy this cult, close it down, shut it down and get Alan out and independent. Now it's juxtaposed though with the story of Moransley, her great grandmother back in Ireland and her origin story. So this this story is taking place back in 1920s Ireland in a little village outside of Cork and the original origins of the society, which at that point was run by Moransley's father. It wasn't matriarchal at all. It was very patriarchal. They were living on the edge of society. You know, the religion was basically intermeshed with law during the 1920s and and not too much off today, you know, in, in Ireland but especially in the 1920s. And so you have this, uh, this girl growing up in this community just barely, they're barely accepted by the people in Cork, uh, but they're basically practicing pagans who put on a good face for the visiting priests. But it's her origin story of what happens to her and how this starts. And we start the book with her pregnant 
and out of wedlock, which is essentially a crime in 1920s Ireland. And this was at the start of the real, of the notorious mother and baby homes in Ireland and across and across the country. So she's terrified. She knows exactly what's going to happen if her if her gentleman friend doesn't come back or if something doesn't happen. And eventually she does in the book get wind up in the best borough mother and baby home. And it's really her origin story of how she finds her power, discovers that she is also not a very ordinary person and comes to America to start Cinder Avenue, which would have been in the mid to late twenties. So it's, it's a, it's a story told from two different perspectives. It also sounds like two different ends of like the same, what's the metaphor, like a burning candle that's lit at both ends. Um, one story is the start of it all while, you know, Kate's story is trying to end it all. Yes. Yeah. More, yeah. More honestly story is definitely about starting us or starting it right. In her opinion, the society has existed under her father's rule, but now she's going to do it the right way and they can be open and they can be matriarchal and they can be pagan and they can be all these things. And then Kate's story is definitely about ending this Mm -hmm. and closing this cult and getting her brother free from it and independent now uh with both of the those characters you also have the third character's voice which is alan um you know which kind of juxtaposed you know from the other two women um what were the challenges in including his voice when you had two very strong female characters and then you're trying to i guess balance with alan and allow him to also, his voice to come through and not get lost amongst all the women. It's hard because here, and he's a hot mess. I mean, and I liked the idea of writing Alan's character because how would he not be? Here's this little boy who went through this absolutely hellish childhood by any definition in Davla. You know, his father is, you know, he loses his mother and then he loses his father and he ends up in foster care and he's kidnapped and just all these things are happening to him throughout his childhood. And then he ends up in this extremely off kilter situation growing up with his sister and they're in a cult. I mean, you can put it, I mean, she tries to tone it down to make it as normal as possible for him, but it's a cult he's in. Mm -hmm. So as he gets to be 18, he's not he's not functional you know he may have a good front on but it was hard to make his voice as strong but not dominant and i wanted to really juxt i really wanted to highlight i should say the um weaknesses or the frailties that he expressed or that he had Mm -hmm. without making him seem like a weak person he's a damaged person and he's trying his best, but he does not have the tools in order to function in, in, in the world as a normal person, as much as his sister wants him to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we read so many stories where the men hold the power. However, in this series, as you were discussing, uh, the women really hold the power. So was it difficult to write a matriarchal structured narrative, particularly in patriarchal society that we're in today so how did you find balance and and did you find that you would be writing something and realize that that here's patriarchy coming through when you're really trying to focus on a different story well it's hard to not just write like the patriarchy handbook but swap (laughs) it out with female leaders you know it's hard to actually take it's hard to do that, I think, in an authentic way. And I definitely found myself having to um, backtrack a lot and be like, no, okay, look, you can't just, just because a woman does it, <laughs> doesn't make it it's okay all of a sudden. <laughs> That's not what a matriarchal society would look like. And yeah. at the same time, you don't want to uh, lean into stereotypes, you know, mm-hmm. oh, we're all mothers and we're loving and let's come in for a hug. You don't want that either. So you, you would definitely want to make, it was, it was a challenge to try to make it authentic and believable and what that would really look like. And I think it is part of the reason that Kate isn't a particularly likable character. Um, and, it's not, and she's not in Dawson. 
<laughs> I was telling you guys earlier, uh, one of my biggest challenges in Davla was making, was the rewrites, was making her tolerable as a human, you know, or semi-human. It uh, was making her, sorry, I didn't hear the airport, so. No problem. We actually don't hear anything. anything. Yeah. Oh, you don't? Oh my God, that's so great. It's like all I can hear when this happens. Uh, <laughs> well, no, it's, it's funny because just... you said she's not a likable character, like, you know, aside from, you know, her, uh, you know, journey in Diabla, you know, I'm thinking like, even in the beginning of, you know, Cinder, you know, she's in her, her office, and I'm using air quotes in office, because this right. is the converted room in her house with, you know, the, 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 the chair from the previous book, and it's stolen a desk from the curbside. But yeah. it's a very uh, Caesar-like moment. People are coming to her with her, with their ills and woes and grievances. And basically, it makes me in a very peplum thing, because that's how I approach a lot of stuff. She's very much like a Caesar character saying, yay or nay, I decide in this favor, I decide in that favor. And yeah. let's just be honest, you know, <laughs> there was not that many good Caesars out there. No, no, that's never a popular role to be in. It's a terrible role because nobody's ever going to be happy with you all the time. And she's not very compassionate. And it's not because she's not entirely human. Uh, it's because she's in charge and she has to make really tough decisions to make sure that all of these people who have their own individual needs at the forefront, you know, don't screw everything up. And so she's not very compassionate. She comes off as being kind of cold at times, mm -hmm. but it, it, you know, it's, it's difficult because you have to be able to kind of lean in and let her be strong and let her be inflexible at times, but also show that she struggles with, okay, well, here I am, you know, I'm having to do this. So, it's it was it was really interesting and it's definitely a challenge to write um to write this sort of book i i feel like a lot of books that feature matriarchal societies kind of go a lot of different directions with it either they're all like you know they're all just warrior german, ah, and everybody's tough as nails and i don't go don't wrong i like those stories and i'm just not sure it all be like that you know, or they're all like mother nature, like, come on, everybody, let's hug it out. And I don't, you know, they, they, they tend to go to two different extremes. Whereas you see this in politics, too. I mean, you see that women who, I mean, either you're too tough, or you're too weak, or you're too weepy, or you're too cold. I mean, there's never a right balance that's going to make everybody happy, you know? Yeah. Well, on, on the subject of challenges, um, to verify, Cinder, that's your first. This is your first direct sequel of a book, right? Right. I, right. I, I think we've talked before that, like one of your other books, Hag, has some like linkages to some of your other work. But this is your first true sequel, sequel of a book, right? Yes. Yeah. So, what, what sort of, because, uh, well, what sort of challenges stuff do you face when writing a, a sequel? Like, uh, I guess the larger question was one when you were writing a Diable the first, you know, first time, did you envision it as a multi-part book or, you know, oh, you know, I've actually got two different stories to tell here. I need to split it across or, you know, what, what's, I guess what I'm trying to say is, what's the evolution from one book to two books and you need a sequel? And, you know, how do you balance that? When, when do you decide goes into one book and then not another one? Yeah. Oh, no, excellent. I, um, so I wrote Davla as in my head, it was a standalone book. And then my publisher actually approached me about what happens next. And so they actually signed a two book deal for books two and three kind of all together. So as I was finishing Davla and as I was doing the edits, particularly in the final bits of writing, I was having to think like, oh, you can't just seal this up with a bow. You have to leave it open enough for another story. And the, the challenge with Cinder was that not only did I have to come in to an opening, but I had to leave an opening for the third book to happen. And I'm not used to writing like that. I'm not. I always joke with my husband that I'm terrible at endings. I'm terrible. Um, I, I don't know how to end. I always hit a point that where I drive my family crazy at some point while I'm writing my books where I'm like, well, it's never going to end. There's no ending to this book. This book doesn't end. You know, you're in pleasant company, though, because there's one other amazing author who who cannot end a book. He just it just ends. And what I mean by that, it's like the middle of the page. That's it. And that's, that's Neil it Stevenson. over the end. Neil Stevenson and Snow Crash and all his other books. You just end. 
You know, it'd be in the middle of an action sequence or a nuclear bomb going mm-hmm. off or whatever. That's just it. So you are a cyberpunk-less Neil Stevenson. Yeah, no, I really can't. And I get to the ending and I'm like, there's this old um, folk song by Christine Lavin. And it, it's like the whole song is like, this song has no ending. What was I thinking? This song has no end. And I always sing that in my head every time I hit the end of a book. But in this one, not only did the book have no end, because I did hit that wall with Cinder. It was like, it can't just end. It can't end. Like, because I have to write a third book. So I have to leave a really good door open at the end of this to introduce book three so it was interesting and I definitely struggled with the ending of it but I feel like it came together pretty well I'm not gonna tell anything because y'all are gonna have to go read it but I'm not saying a thing yeah I I I will not uh, spoil anything either but having uh finished (laughs) reading it she just um, confirmed there's a book three. That is spoiler enough. I well, didn't even know. know. I may have been right. This may be the book from the cat's perspective. You don't even know. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But no, I think um, having read the first one and where it ended to the second one and where it ended, it it felt like it was the right right moment, actually, because of everything that was going on, particularly in book two where they were, um, it, it just, it struck the right chord. It felt like, okay, this is, this is a good point because it is, it's, it, it, it's tough reading in, in, in some ways because of Kate, as you said earlier, is not the most likable character. Um, but I did feel that in this book, she seemed to turn a corner and I wonder how that was for you writing her if it got a little easier in the second book, uh, telling her story and juxtaposing with her great grandmother and then also with Alan. It was easier to show her compassion and to show her emotion, having Alan as sort of her foil, if you will, and having him there, having, having him be an object of affection for her and a way for her to show her kind of humanity towards him because she hadn't really had that in the first book. In fact, the whole, one of the whole, one of the big themes in Davla was the fact of how alone she really was and how little she could trust people and how every time she did trust somebody, they ended up really betraying her pretty badly. And in this book, she is in charge. I mean, nobody is going to mess with her. Like you said, she is kind of a Caesar character in, mm-hmm. in that. It's, it's funny because I actually got really inspired by watching uh, the Godfather movies before I was in there. <laughs> And it kind of bleeds through. Uh, so you, no, but, but, but Alan provides an outlet for her to be compassionate, you know, and even though she's not necessarily, she's not necessarily very good at expressing it. She definitely has very good motivations for him. She mm-hmm. wants him happy and she doesn't, she has very parental kind of things. You know, you don't care so much. Your kid can hate you, mm-hmm. but as long as they are okay. You know, they are safe, they are happy, they are, you've, you've pushed them onto the road to make good decisions. Mm-hmm. They're mad at you, and okay, <laughs> right? Oh. They're just gonna have to get over that. But she definitely has a very parental um, kind of view poor, towards Alan in that regard. But it, it definitely shows her compassion too. But that was easier to write her as a softer, I hesitate to say softer, but more um, compassionate mm-hmm. character. Well, I think we could see more of her humanity uh, in book two than we necessarily could in book one. But I think that's part of part of that, I think, arises from her journey and learning who she is and, you know, also being on the run. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, so let let me toss out something. I was going to say devil's advocate, but maybe I should say Diablo's advocate. Okay, that was pretty bad. That's good. I like it. So, book one, she she's in the 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 runaway home, M- McLaren, right? Or, mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. which is weird because you know, again, I read that book. I didn't really know about a sequel or anything. So to me, it's a self-contained story. And what I took away a lot from it, aside from the the very vague uh, outrun slash synthwave stuff, which I'm always drawn to, was I I kind of consider it a critique 
of, you know, uh, kids that are outcasts from society that are put into homes and whatnot and how horrible they are. But as Michelle's saying, kind of what you're saying right here, you're going into book two where she is a bit more human, a bit nicer. She still has resting bitch face, but, you know, she's a bit nicer. In a weird sort of way, are, are we kind of saying that her ordeal through the terrible, terrible home that she was in in book one was successful in a weird sort of way? I think that she came out of that entire ordeal with... Yeah, it was trial by fire is a very good way to put it. Okay. Very good way to put way it. Way better way than I was going with this. But the way <laughs> I was phrasing it, it's like, yeah, you know, runaway kid homes work. And I'm like, I didn't really want to say that. But, but well, there we go. Well, but she had to learn. I mean, she learned in book one, uh, you know, some very adult lessons. Like she was forced to grow up from being 10 years old to all of a sudden being an adult and she had to manage her own business and she had to manage her own safety and she had to manage her own emotions because there wasn't going to be anybody to comfort her you know she wasn't allowed to be a kid anymore as of about 10 minutes you know after the incident the opening incident in Davla happens Mm -hmm. and you definitely see that and I think it's part of the reason why she is so unpleasant I mean I, I you know I think it's she's part <laughs> sorry, I have a coworker here who's uh, very interested in the interview but uh, it's part of the reason that she is so difficult to get along with in book one um, mm-hmm. because she's in survival mode mm-hmm. straight out she's in absolute pure survival mode and as you get into book two she has found she she now knows what she she knows what she brings to the table Let's put it that way, um, both in this world and the next. And she's not going to let anybody walk over her anymore. And she's not going to let anybody push her out of her home anymore. And she's not going to let anybody do it to her brother. She's found a way to protect him the way that she was not protected as a kid. Yeah. And so it, you know, it, the McLaren Hall, as I talked about in the, like the interview when we talked last year, was a real place and it was shut down relatively recently and like you're talking like the 1990s like mclaren hall was still in place but that's not the only one of those places i mean those homes are still all over the place not just in la they're everywhere it's 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 how our society handles kids that we don't know what to do with and if a kid has a problem behavioral problem you know something that's going to make them difficult to place with a family they end up in these these places right places like McLaren Hall, even today. And I guess you can only hope, like best case scenario, that they come out of it, you know, strong as hell, right? Because the other alternative to that is that they're broken. And I I guess I hope that Kate came out of that with survival skills. Uh, And as she gets into her early adulthood, she's not gonna let anybody take that from her again. And she's not gonna let anybody touch her brother. Because that's, that's, you know, she's, the human part of her has been like, uh-uh, no, I know exactly what I, what I bring to this party, you know, and I know what I'm capable of. If, yeah. if I recall from our interview a year ago, which folks listening, we'll put that in the show notes as well. Your research in McLaren Hall was a big catalyst to even start book one. So it's kind of, sounds like it's a very interesting journey of how you went from, you know, kind of writing about experience of this hall to, now you got a three book deal that kind of spun, I don't want to say out of control, but just kind of grew into something really big. Yeah. No, it's weird how that happens. It's weird how like, and actually it was a combination of me researching McLaren Hall, which I'm not the first author to um, write about that. I mean, Janet Fitch has written about that in White Oleander quite extensively. And, and there's just been a lot of people who explored that, but it was a combination of researching this really infamous group home here in Los Angeles, but also uh, watching a documentary. And it was a a documentary about a woman in New Zealand who was supposedly possessed by the devil. And it was absolutely stunning. 
absolutely stunning. I'm going to have to find the name of it for you because it's off the top of my tip of my tongue at the moment, but it's really, really stunning. And, and, you know, if you look at it objectively with science eyes, she probably was suffering from a breakdown. She was having like a, probably a massive uh, manic depressive episode. She needed help, but her family was very superstitious and they thought she was possessed and they ended up killing her. Real quick, not to, not to, this, this is your hour, but I don't really mean to pimp what Michelle and I have, but in our uh, horror literature, <laughs> Gothic, the postmodern book, we have an essay in there by Bridget uh, McCowan about exorcism films and possession mm -hmm. films, where it takes the framework of there really isn't like possession going on. This is like, you know, patriarchal folk, you know, coming down, people acting out, whatever. So, so something for you to look at a little bit later <laughs> well a lot of them were i mean when you look at the history of witchcraft uh and accusations and the history of mental asylums and when how women you know were basically just shuttled off to mental asylums and called you know uh, you know called witches and whatnot if they acted out of the norm at all or angry or sad or mad or glad or any emotion that got too extreme that's been happening throughout history and it, it, but it's really really interesting it was a combination of of researching this this group home and then watching this documentary and i was like wait a minute what if these two things went together <laughs> mm -hmm. <You> know? <laughs> hey that would be fun but then three books later it's like what was I thinking? This book has no end. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, speaking of McLaren Hall, um, you spoke earlier uh, mentioning that uh, in this book with the great grandmother, you actually discuss the the modern baby homes of the 1920s and beyond. And we know you know, I hadn't thought about those being in uh, other countries. I mean, I, I'd heard about them here. Um, what got you um, kind of focused in on that and as a, as a way of segueing the story so that you continue to explore and give critical analysis of some of these different uh, state apparatuses that are out there or even religious apparatuses that are out there? supposedly to help children especially yeah uh, no it's interesting because it was more documentaries really i mean really there was a whole bunch of documentaries out there about mm -hmm. uh bestborough bestborough mother and baby home in particular but also because there was a number of years ago there was a huge discovery of a mass grave outside one of the mother and baby homes in ireland and they found just oh i mean just dozens and dozens of of skeletons baby skeletons that were just buried you know, and covered up and nobody ever wanted, you know, no, nobody's ever going to claim responsibility for it. And, and then they discovered, you know, the, then they discovered that this probably exists all over, right? Mm -hmm. Outside of all of the, a lot of the mother and baby homes are, have gone back to being convents and churches and different things now, but, but basically mm -hmm. these things exist all over the place. And, and it was absolutely fascinating for me, but in writing the story, I guess I realized that this would be, again these two things kind of go together right and that's exactly what would happen to Ansley if she was pregnant in mm -hmm. 1920s and Bestboro in particular uh would have been very new in 1924 1925 um I believe somebody's gonna fact check me on this but I believe it was 1920 or 1921 that it was turned into a mother and baby home officially so it was still relatively new um a new one not that I think that makes it any better but all of the stories and all the experiences that are in Cinder actually happened at Bestboro. It was part of like the research that I did. They just didn't all necessarily happen to a person, you know, but they were all authentic experiences that I found through research of women who had been uh, kept there from all the way from the twenties clear up into the 1960s, wow. you know, cause it, this, these went on for an extraordinarily long, long time. Mm -hmm. Well, aside from, you know, what you both are talking about, you know, right now, the state apparatus for, you know, taking in the unwanted kids and what happens to them, you know, you're looking at it from, you know, two different time frames, 1920s, first book, 1980s, but now technically 1990s. I guess the question is, what, what else did you kind of learn just juxtaposing those two very distinct decades together? You've got Roaring Twenties versus, you know, the uh, the 90s, which brought us, you know, uh, the end of history and uh, 
whatever that book is called. <laughs> well, it's interesting. I think there's a sense of rebellion, both in the 1920s and in the 1990s, that is just it very mirrors it's each other very much and in the 20s i mean you're you're talking you're coming out of world war 1 you're coming out of uh the you know the the flu pandemic you you have a lot of people who are just finding their feet again and finding their voices again and they haven't they're a bit like us they have been locked up imagine us 3 years from now having been locked up in quarantine and how um, ready we are going to be to take over the world again i mean that was kind of the 1920s like especially among young people in across across the globe probably but particularly when you look at the culture and society in europe and in ireland uh, which is why a lot of the mother and baby homes and a lot of these societal clamps came down is because they felt like things were getting too wild and crazy. Uh, and then you look at the 90s, and I feel like there was definitely a sense of rebellion and freedom in the 1990s as well. You had uh, more civil liberties for people. I mean, it's nothing, nothing compared to where it should have been, but more so. I know as a kid in the 90s, I was graduated high school in 94. Uh, there was a real sense that there wasn't anything you couldn't do. I mean, you had Nirvana and you had, you had all of these influences coming at you that were like, I don't have to care and I'm not going to smile for you, you know? Like, <laughs> that was definitely the pervasive attitude that we were allowed to have. You know, we didn't have to be cute. I could be goth as all heck, you know, and, uh, you know, and, and I kind of was. I know it's shocking, right? <laughs> but, uh, but you were, there was definitely a sense of rebellion, kind of quiet rebellion, the same as in the 20s. And, and I, I think those decades very, are very interesting to juxtapose, mm -hmm. right? I just I feel like they're very interesting. It's also really interesting because of the lack of technology, I guess, in both decades, uh, you don't have, I don't have to integrate smartphones and real-time communications and uh, the kind of immediacy of everyone knowing everything all the time, which is, I, some authors do it brilliantly. I just finished Ruth Ware's new book, One by One, which is awesome, and everybody ought to go read it, uh, but it definitely kind of seamlessly melds in technology and smartphones and the idea that I can text you. It just, and everybody, everything's right on top of each other, but mm -hmm. it's nice to not have that. And it's nice to go back to kind of what we can forget easily was a simpler day when information and, and news and wasn't immediate. I mean, you had to go walk over and tell somebody or call them or walk to the next town if you wanted to communicate. And there was definitely that sense of patience with both decades that we straight up don't have now. Mm -hmm. And it's all very different. Uh, that's a good point because I hadn't thought about that in reading the story, but thinking back to the various events, having that, that break between the event happening and then actually discovering it or other people discovering it helps to create, help to heighten that, that sense of uh, tension and suspense in the various, you know, uh, narrative beats that you had in, in the story. Well, it's interesting because if you write a book set in modern day now, I think you, you do have to face the challenge of, well, everybody would just know that, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody would have texted it to somebody and they would have texted it to that guy and everybody knows now. So there's no suspense. It's just hard to build suspense in a world where everybody knows everything all the time as soon as it happens. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it's, no, but it is interesting. And I think a lot of filmmakers, um, Nick Verso, who is in Australia and doing, he's handling the movie adaptation of Laird Baylor, my first book, which is mm -hmm. awesome. But he has talked a lot about the, why he chooses to do a lot of his movies set in the nineties. And it's exactly that reason is that it is so difficult to build suspense and it's so difficult to deal with the transmission of information in a realistic way and build the kind of tension in a story when you're having to constantly manage everybody's technology. Mm -hmm. There's a term that some, I read it in an article, I couldn't tell you which, but you could totally Google it. Uh, and I probably fall into this as well. There's this uh, generation of folks between Gen X and millennials called the Oregon Trail Generation. Uh, named after, you know, the Apple IIe game. But the idea was 
this generation of folks, you know, they grew up both during before and after, um, you know, internet, you know, they could still remember a time of not being all connected where right. you'd still go outside and play, you'd, you'd have more in-person um, relationships, but at this, you know, but at the same time they survived, survived. I mean, come on, it's a strong word, but you know, they made that transition also to early internet adopters, you know, from the old days of AOL, ICQ, MIRC, and so on and so forth that, you know, that they contain a little bit of that, you know, pre-internet uh, time, but also grew up with it as well that, I don't know, it's starting in there, it just it seems like, you know, Kate would kind of almost be an Oregon Trail generation type person. <laughs> well, no, she would, you know, because she would have come up through an age and she would have come to, um, I mean, she's a lot like, well, okay, so Kate's basically the same age as I am, really. I mean, like, she was 10 26. in 1986, and you can all do the math on this one, but, you know, I, I was basically writing what my experience of being 10 in 1986 was. So, but definitely, it's, it's, because, you know, it's funny, because my students don't, they think, like, the internet was a continent we discovered. <laughs> it's just... It's, it was always out there. We just didn't hadn't unvisited it yet. And I, I have to remind them sometimes that no, it's it's a thing, like your blender, and it will go away at some point if if the stuff hits the fan hard enough. Um, it's it, it was discovered and it can be undiscovered. It's in, impermanent, right? But we kind of grew up in this idea of we don't need it. You know, I would be sad. Like when our internet goes out, it's like the end of the world around here. But, but I can deal with it. And Kate's definitely in that same boat. She's had to adapt throughout the 90s and beyond. She's going to have to like, you know, deal with the new technology, figure out the Twitter. <laughs> right? She actually said the Twitter. She put an I article guess. in front of it. Okay, so changing technologies, changing, you know, cultural tastes, pop culture and whatnot, because you're, you know, what's going on in the 20s, what's going on in the 90s. You talked a little bit about Nirvana earlier, so we're talking about the advent of grunge. So I'm just going to segue this to a more happier question of what is the soundtrack for this book? Because I don't think the Kate sections are going to be the most succulent vapor wave out there. It's probably going to be a little bit more post-grunge and maybe gritty and i'm well, thinking well, well, dark i'm thinking like dark ambient uh -huh. you know well, well the 1920s is going to be total you know janet klein style <laughs> so what you is the soundtrack so... for this book for readers if they want to you know especially since you do some time jumping here yeah you, you're gonna be so disappointed in me let's hear it you're gonna be so disappointed in my answer here because i am such a complete dork about being able to write to music and i really can't like I can't, like I, what I really need is a tomb of silence. Mm -hmm. And since that doesn't exist in my life, um, I listen to storm sounds. Okay. I'm not, I, I know it's not. So Michelle was right. <laughs> yeah, no, it's the worst answer, but I, it's storm sounds. I have an app on my phone that does like ambient noise and I think you're supposed to sleep to it, but I can't sleep with anything because I'm afraid the ax murder is going to come in when I can't hear, you know, and kill me. And I'm going to be like, it's because I had music playing or storm sounds. Um, no, <laughs> yeah, I'm crazy. Michelle, same boat. She spent yeah. years trying to track down this vinyl that all it is is ambient sounds of a wooden boat on the water. Yes, they have that. It's the environment series that came out in the seventies, where they, where they ran around recording different, uh, like nature. They have a, a thunderstorm, a, a stream, and there was, I heard it once, and it was totally one of those old wooden sailing ships. So oh my gosh. you hear the bell once in a while, and the the creak of the wood and the wind, you know, whipping through the sails. And it's just, it's so relaxing. But yes, I spent many years and now I have two copies <laughs> of that record. So well, one, like one open and one not open. <laughs> but they are, they can be incredibly creepy. I mean, you think about like uh, Lalo Schifrin uh, doing the soundtrack for The Exorcist and running around uh, recording things like a thousand beetles crawling across, uh, you know, aluminum and stuff like stuff like that, that went into the uh, composition of the score and the music. 
for that for for that movie in particular but others too and yeah I could not listen to anything and I really only listened to that if there was just way too much everything going on around me in the background so I would put on storm sounds and and just sort of like okay I'm writing here um so yeah it's it's bad the only book I've ever been able to write to music was Laird Baylor and that one I listened to classical music like piano music and that that was that's the only one that's had a soundtrack per se because I'm such a weirdo I really am there's some like lizard part of my brain that says the axe murderer is behind you and he sees you have your headphones in (laughs) and he's he's coming for you and I really can't relax (laughs) so so Kathy I'm, I'm gonna abate your fears here because there's an actual legit term for that it's an actual music genre for it it's called field recordings and and it's it's a legit thing it, it, it ties into uh the ambient genre dark ambient black ambient and all that other stuff okay. but but a, a a lot of industrial music is based around the concept or genre of field recordings of where seriously it is a musician that goes out there with just the mic and they capture what's out there. They may turn it to samples that they could remix into something else, or they may turn it to maybe a narrative or maybe just a soundscape, but it's an actual genre, field recording. So that's what you listen to, field recordings. Oh, cool. Okay, good. I have a, I don't have the don't, please ax murder, don't, <laughs> genre. you know, that's what I've been calling it. <laughs> it's just field notes for ears. <laughs> I guess one of the, the big things is, so getting a little, I think I was probably the guilty party to, to derail us. I'm typically a guilty party of always doing that. Uh, I would agree with that. <laughs> so getting back to Cinder, <laughs> what would you say out of all of it was the biggest thing that you wanted to accomplish with this book other than setting it up for book three? <laughs> like what, what made you walk away saying, you know, I said what I needed to say. And you don't have to reveal what it is, but what was it? either personally, professionally, narratively, that you really wanted to accomplish with this story. Because again, it is unique in your bibliography that it, it is your first sequel. And now it's technically, you know, book two in a book three series. So that makes it even a bit more unique. It's a middle child, I guess. Yeah, it is a middle child. Uh, and middle children are difficult, notoriously. <laughs> I'm one of them. So it's... um. No, I, you know, I, I wanted to talk about in this book, what I really wanted to talk about was beginnings and endings. And I was fascinated by how much they mirror each other. And that was really what I wanted to do with this was mirror the beginning of the society and the end of the society and how similarly that looks, you know, it's like birth and death and how similar those two facilities look like in a lifetime you know and and it with you talk about the birth and the death of a cult or a society or a way of life um Mm. or a people because these this is for many of these people this is all they've known this is this world this is it and it's it's dying and it's dying for a lot of reasons it's not sustainable kate can't sustain this world for them anymore it's you know it's a new world it's getting more expensive they're not accepted they're a little too far out there she has to make changes and there's also just such an interesting thing which i think is so pervasive in today's just politics and social structure about our tendency to cling to old ideals to cling to well it used this used to work and so we're going to stick with it right archaic ideas and to be so resistant to change traditionalism yes and there's you look a at- big rise of that right now especially with yeah. uh, not not to get too political but under you know trumpism when you had like uh, i think it o- o'bannon or whatever his first you know guy all about traditionalism and not like traditionalism with a lowercase t but uppercase t of set of ideals of how things mm-hmm. should run oh sure and you look at their reaction to what they call you know the upstart progressive you know ideas being introduced and it's like that's crazy you know so i like the idea of introducing the fact that i'm discussing and dealing with this fact of traditionalism is an excellent way of putting it of of what do we do when our guiding concept becomes archaic are are we as a society big enough to 
let that change into something that can sustain or will we actually watch ourselves fold we will we fold in on ourselves before we will accept that things have to that they have to be different on a, real quick on the subject of beginnings and endings i'm not although occulty thingies are pretty cool I, i'll be the first to admit i'm not the most expert on it but going to kind of paganistic things here is this the concept of the ouroboros in this book you know where it's uh you know very circular you know snake eating the tail type thing the beginning is the end very much i mean this is to kate's mind as you go through cinder her ultimate goal is to end the society that's it now does she you have to read book three <laughs> yeah. Now, it, was she successful in doing that, or was uh, Alan too entrenched? Right. This is a kid who has the only security and stability and sameness in his life has been Cinder Avenue. That's it. Right. You know, his life fell apart the minute his mother died, and he had to leave Cinder Avenue. And the only time he ever felt any stability is when they returned. So he is fighting tooth and nail to try to keep it right this is it this is this comfort blanket so did she succeed is what you have to ask yourself as you go into book um three because she had a goal to get him out and on his own and make him not dependent or beholden to any of the traditions that had been uh, handed to him i'm afraid of what's going to happen to him just because i think of his dad in book one I remember actually cheering on his dad in book one when he's actually able to finally get out of the society. He starts, he, he makes a house. He's trying to get custody of his kids. He actually sounds like he's on a good path and it just goes to crap so bad that, right. and, you know, and again, you know, he, he does some very, very bad things, turns alcoholism and all that stuff. But I have so much pity and sorrow for him that, you know, it, it's very possible, you know, outsider looking in, not because again, book three is not out yet. Book two comes out later this month, which will pimp a little <laughs> bit later. You know, yeah. Alan could very well fall on that same path. I mean, he's basically in the same position in this book as their dad was in book one. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And you should, you have, I, you know, it's, it's so funny to me how we, we talked about this earlier, but it's like, I, and I find, I've already submitted book three. And so book two has been in my life for a very long time. And I forget that it hasn't been in other people's lives. <laughs> Nobody's read it yet. <laughs> <laughs> and so to me, I'm like, no, no, but book three. <laughs> because what happens here? So I, yeah, no, you, you have every right to be afraid because I think that's, it's incredibly hard. And I mean, and this is the human condition, isn't it? I mean, you, you struggle your whole life to not fall victim to the things that you were predispositioned to fall victim to. Mm -hmm. And nobody, unless you really grew up in a crap childhood, you know, nobody intentionally plants that stuff. It's just everything that you had to struggle with in order to get out of your childhood in one piece, you work your entire adult life not to fall back into. And you inevitably do. Yeah, of course, right? You have habits that you uh, garnered as a kid for coping with anger or sadness or whatever that you go, you retreat right back into on adult level. And then if you take the idea that you never really learned how to function as yeah. a kid, you never really learned how to be safe and let make help make other people safe. What kind of adult do you turn into? You know? Yeah. So yeah, no, definitely you should be afraid for Alan. Yeah, I, I really got the sense, well, I, I mean, having read book two, and I, I won't say too much, but the fact that, you know, it's so easy to fall into a certain uh, amount of failure, whether you're in the cult or outside of it. And so that it's an interesting study of Alan's and uh, Kate's father and what happens with him, and then to see how does Alan deal with it? it basically damaged very similarly to um, the father who was ineffective um, and didn't have any sort of voice. You know, he's just a part of, of that, that world without yeah. having any sort of sense of agency. And Alan really to, to an extent being in the same, same situation and, and whether he will see or not see 
uh, what Kate is trying to, to do right. to help him out, you know, trying to make, just trying to, to help him out of that world and, and to have something, some sort of sense of normalcy. Um, so yeah, it'll definitely be interesting in book three. Just so far away. It seems so crazy. Time has stopped has like ceased to mean anything to me in all of this pandemic. And so I keep forgetting that I have a book coming out that it's October. Well, maybe so, we'll, we'll use that as a nice uh, transition point to talk about when things are coming out. I mean, you know, your projects I mean, well, I guess, I guess a couple of things we can ask right here. One, it's been a year since we've last talked to you. So, you know, what other major things have been going on? Uh, two, Cinder comes out on our RC here. It says October 27th, but you know, mm -hmm. I'm hoping that's still set in stone. Three, when can we expect a, a book three? And I guess four, what other cool stuff is going on? Be it other projects, short stories, uh, anything else you want to talk about? Well, so Cinder launches on October 27th, which is awesome. And I, I have to keep reminding myself that it is October uh, <laughs> already. Uh, <laughs> and I am so excited because we just were able to announce it today. They finally just got all the details together. Uh, you know, book launches and events are all weird now, but we have this amazing one. I have an amazing event planned through Book Bar in Denver. And it's on November 8th at 4, it's 3 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 4 p.m. Mountain Time. And then everybody else has to do the math because I'm lost at that point. <laughs> but, <laughs> but on November 8th at Book Bar, it's virtual. But I, it's not just me. I am joined. I don't know how I got in on this panel, but I have Almakatsu, Lisa Morton, and Joe Kaplan with me. And we're talking about women in horror. And I... Like I said, I'm going to try not to geek out at this, but I'm not going to succeed because Amakatsu's book, The Deep, is come, it came out this last year and it's it, phenomenal. And then Joe Kaplan's book, It Will, be, it will Just Be Us. Uh, you guys, I don't have to tell you that this book just like will knock your complete socks off. It's like the scariest Shirley Jackson-esque book in the world. And Lisa Morton does not need any introduction. I just got her book on seances right calling all spirits and her book her her compilation of stories uh by female horror writers was out earlier this year so she's like on fire right now and so i get to sit down with all three of them and talk about women in horror on november 8th at book bar which congratulations uh, that, there will be video and you get to see me absolutely lose my cool if i ever had any <laughs> um so i'm really looking forward to that one that's going to be like amazing but that's really the only event that i can kind of do like because events were weird this year and a lot of smaller yeah, bookstores were. yeah. weren't even doing virtual events i always do like in normal years i do an in-person event at book soup and they just weren't doing them this year because they just don't have the capacity you, you did yeah. that for diable you are raising funds for races which mm -hmm. is a very good yeah. cause you appeared great. at book soup then you traveled to denver uh to book barn and then uh, you know uh, your world domination keeps going so keep going what you're doing well it it definitely mentioned about uh the option of your book to a movie can you tell us a little bit more about that because that's that was Lord that's exciting Taylor. yeah yeah yeah, no, that one is so, oh my gosh, it's so cool. It's like a dream. Uh, yeah, Larry Baylor, the film options uh, went to Echo Lake Studios and then Nick Ferriso, who's, if you haven't seen The Boys in the Trees, you really ought to check it out, especially now that it's Halloween. If you don't only watch it, though, if you're not sure if you want to sleep that night, because you won't. Um, it's... <laughs> He's so good and he's so talented and he has so many things coming up. Like he's just, he's getting really, he's huge right now. Mm -hmm. uh, but that was picked up by Screen Australia. So it is being produced through Screen Australia. They have a script um, that I got a first look at and I am blown away by how beautiful Nick Verso made that book into a script. It's That's just- gotta be surreal to be an author. Something. But then to see a script come back on one of your own works, I can't even fathom how surreal that would be. Like, I wrote this, but I didn't write this, but I oh. kind of did. But I, I no, sorry, it's I can't crazy. Think of no, it's absolutely crazy. And he was very worried. He was very nervous. He was like, I hope you're okay. Because obviously you change <laughs> things, right? And if you read Laird Baylor, there's like no way you'd put that old thing in a movie. Are you insane? Uh, so of course it's different. 
right? And he was very nervous about me reading it. And he kept saying, well, I hope it's okay. And I was like in tears. I was like in tears. First off, I was like, that happened in the book? <laughs> and then I was also hit with the other feeling of, man, you should have written the book. This is so much better than what I did. <laughs> I wish Aww. I had, I wish we had talked, you know, when I was writing, because this is such a, this is way better. No, I'm so excited. I, I, I feel like every once in a while you have movies of books that are just, that heighten it and bring it to another level. And I am, I have every confidence that that's exactly what he's going to do. It's stunning. It's just stunning. So I, and it's going to be a long time because not only does, do movies take a long time, but um, pandemic movies take an even longer time. Oh yeah. <laughs> so I could definitely see where this uh, series, uh, the Diabolus series could be made into film. Is there the potential of that happening in the future? I can neither confirm nor deny those oh. allegations. Yeah. I'll I just leave it at that. Oh, I, I yeah. just throw out there because I'm observant like this. Her publisher is Turner. And if we recall, we were at PowerCon two years ago and there was a guy there from Turner who was in charge of movie stuff talking about He-Man. And we went up and talked to him about Kathleen. So that's all I remember of it. But I'm just saying that, you know, there's connectivity there. So I, 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 I'm going to lean toward That'd be so cool if there's some movies, come, more movies yeah. coming out. I can either confirm... No one deny the rumors <laughs> out there. I really can't because it's like everything exists in such a baby stage. Oh, sure. For mm -hmm. an but we can cross amount. our fingers for your successes, though. Yeah. yeah, just just send the good juju that way. So, but I'm I am really excited about mm -hmm. that. Not confirmed nor denied. If I could throw All out right. there, though, if, if if a movie can't be made, get the cover artist of Cinder to do a graphic novel adaptation because that cover just with folks yeah go, go out and just google the cover of cinder it looks so cool with its you know it's very minimalistic in color that would be a great stylized graphic novel mm -hmm. oh the cover is stunning mm -hmm. i absolutely cannot get enough of the cover they really knocked it out of the park and uh, the davla cover is gorgeous too but in a very different way i think i feel mm -hmm. like the styles of the two covers are very different and Cinder absolutely gives me such, I love covers that don't tell me too much. You know, I don't want to know exactly what I'm looking at. I just want to get a mood and a sense. And that's really what I get from Cinder is a, such a tone to it. And it, I feel like they just really knocked it out of the park. I love it. It's gorgeous. And I, I can say that with absolutely zero bragging because I have... <laughs> It's funny how little you have to do as an author with any of the decisions they make about these things. It's like you, it's like having a baby and you just send them off to school and they're like, oh, they're really good at math. And you're like, really? How'd that happen? Yeah. That's crazy. You know, like that's what a book is, you know, like I, I came back with this gorgeous cover one day and I was like, all right, go you. Well, I will say um, <laughs> just to shout out, um, the book cover design is by Meg Reed. So just want to do a shout out to her um, on her cover for Cinder. So. Absolutely. Just stunning too. Yeah, no, it's really, really beautiful work. And it's, yeah, everything about it, the colors, the design, like absolutely beautiful stuff. So. Well, and I love the, the very uh, deep shaded image, very, you know, subtle in the, in the background that takes some effort to see, but there's definitely, there's depth in that. This is a book that would look good on the new release section in hardcover when you walk into a Barnes and Noble. Wouldn't it? Right? It would. It'd be stunning. Yeah. 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 Barnes and Noble, if you're listening, we have some decorating <laughs> ideas for you. Yeah. Who do yeah. we need to contact? <laughs> well, so, so we've been making a, you know, uh, poking around, but, um, you know, can you tell us anything about book three? Um, probably not give much away, but can you tell when uh, readers when might expect to see it uh, released? This time next year would be my guess. You're, you're just a yeah. Halloween releaser. I, it's been funny, hasn't it? Uh, Facebook reminds me of this on my memories every <laughs> October. Uh, no, it's it's been funny because it's been um, definitely Halloween releases down the down the road. But yeah, it should be slated for. Obviously, there's not. 
it was a kind of a hot mess when I sent it off to them. Um, I don't know where to put a comma, even if, you know, you know, so I feel bad for all my editors everywhere because I, I teach English and I shouldn't be allowed to. Somebody should come in and intervene, <laughs> <you know? laughs> especially when it comes to grammar. Uh, so it is not even passed through even the first stages of anything yet, but I would anticipate October of 2021. So I would right. also, if I can give another really quick short plug here of is um, I have you a to plug away. <laughs> you have a short story coming out in uh, a, a collection called Speculative LA with Akashic Press and Denise Hamilton as the editor. And that's coming out in February of, of 2021. And it's been in the works for a long time. And this is another one where I am trying not to freak out because I don't want to give anything away. But when I looked mm -hmm. at the collection of authors that had contributed to this 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 collection i was i was like freaking out i was like oh my god oh my god oh my god oh my god right uh francis francesca leah block and luis rodriguez and and lisa morton like you know there's this absolutely amazing collection of authors in there and <laughs> for some reason so that's coming out i think february but it is available for pre-order and it's an absolutely stunning they do so many of these like speculative la noir la uh like regional type books and it's it's going to be gorgeous too so well yeah. we'll find the pre-order link we'll put that in the show notes uh, to yeah. help support it obviously it's, it's, and of so course you know for cinder and your other works as well so yeah obviously where can where can people get cinder I am going to actually do a direct plug and recommend that they get it through Book Bar in Denver, that they pre-order through Book Bar in Denver. And if you don't want to go to that specific indie bookstore, I will absolutely recommend any indie bookstore around you. Not that the Amazon, not, not that Jeff Bezos doesn't need more money, because God knows that poor guy's probably hurting right now. But... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right yacht number five probably needs a needs a new something but but all of your independent bookstores really need you right now so i'm going to push directly book bar in denver because they really are the most amazing community building uh venue ever i love them so much and then uh but all of our book local area bookstores book soup romans um city light books uh all of these books are places are taking orders and shipping books so um yeah i am indie bound where can listeners find you in social media or a better way to phrase how can they keep up on your news and other yeah. happenings well i post a lot of pictures of my dinner and my dog and my cat on um, instagram i'm just vegetarian dinners and they all look so good <laughs> i got an instapot so now you're really in trouble he wants <laughs> one i do yeah. you're in so much trouble Ralph. uh but yeah no so i Instagram, it's just Kathleen Kaufman. I'm uh, on Twitter at, at Kathleen Kaufman. I'm not very creative in my usernames. Um, and on Facebook, Kathleen Kaufman. So I keep that. You can also go to my website, www.kathleenkaufman.com. <laughs> I know, I, I need to branch out a little more perhaps in my naming, but, uh, but I do... <laughs> <laughs> but I, it is all kind of out there. And I love to see everybody out there in, in internet land. Well, Kathleen, any, any last, you know, words of advice, anything to get off your chest or any last bits of news before we uh, come to a close? just really appreciate you guys having me on this is so great and it it is really hard right now i think especially for artists and creators and uh, everybody out there and so i have been so in awe of all of my friends who have had books out this year and all of the people out there who are helping them promote them and i feel like it's an especially important task because it's really easy to lose uh our sense of ourselves and i think through art is the way that we maintain it so support your local bookstores, support your local artists, and just, you know, stay connected. We would like to thank Kathleen for her time and providing insight into Cinder, as well as her Diablo series. We have included links to Kathleen's books, her virtual book launch and panel, and her website in the show notes. We appreciate her support of our podcast and wish her continued success. And in upcoming events... Scholars from the Edge of Time podcast will air on Thursday, October 22nd, and our special guest will be dark fantasy science fiction writer Janet Joyce Holden.
She is the author of the Vampiric Origins of Blood series and the Ghostly Carousel series. Janet's short stories have featured in numerous collections, including 18 Wills of Horror and Halloween Tales. She also has an essay discussing how isolation contributes to space horror films in my Horror in Space anthology. On episode 33 of HP Lovecast, we will discuss Kaj Johnson's 2016 novella, The Dream Quest of Velvet Bow. Fans of H.P. Lovecraft's Dreamlands will be especially interested in this podcast that will drop on Sunday, November 1st. Copies of this novella can be purchased at your favorite online booksellers. And on episode 4 of H.P. Lovecast Presents Fragments, Nicholas and I will be interviewing Robert Ottoni, author of a new collection of short stories, Her Infernal Name and Other Nightmares, published by Spooky House Press. Bram Stoker Award-winning author James Chambers states that Robert is a bold, new voice in dark fiction, and his collection is filled with vivid characters, depth, plot, twists, skin-crawling creatures, and weird supernatural entities that will haunt readers long after the story ends. This episode will post on Sunday, November 15th. HP Lovecast is on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our website is hplovecast.com, and of course, you can also email us at hplovecast at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us by purchasing our books. We each have Amazon author pages with links to all the books we have either edited or contributed to with individual essay chapters. As always, thank you for listening, and please keep safe and healthy. Mm-hmm.